Welcome to a special edition of Fair Territory, the post-deadline edition of Fair Territory. And man, do we have a lot to discuss. I want to start off by just talking about this deadline. It was a different trade deadline than we're used to. Kind of a weird one. And the GMs had warned of this. They had warned of a lack of sellers, a lack of quality players, high prices on controllable pitching, and it all sort of played out the way they said it would. The best hitter moved? It might have been Heimer Candelario, who was non-tendered last December. Non-tendered, and he's the best hitter moved at the deadline. Not exactly Juan Soto. The only controllable pitchers moved were Aaron Savali, went from the Guardians to the Rays, Lance Lynn, who's controllable, but the Dodgers are not going to pick up his $18 million option, most likely. By the way, Lynn, good job in his first start for the Dodgers against the A's, albeit, on Tuesday night. So Dylan Cease didn't go. Mitch Keller didn't go. The Seattle guys didn't go. Even Paul Blackburn of the A's didn't go. Those are all controllable pitchers. The prices on them evidently were too high for teams to bear, to say, okay, we can do this. So you were left with a number of teams that didn't get what they wanted. They didn't get that starting pitcher. I'll list the teams. The Dodgers. All right, they got Lynn, but they wanted one more. They wanted Eduardo Rodriguez. The deal fell apart. He invoked his no trade clause. The Diamondbacks didn't get a starter. Did some other things, but didn't get a starter. The Braves, they were looking for more of a depth piece, but they didn't get it. The Reds, that's a team you might look at and say, mm, maybe they should have done more, but they didn't get a starter. And the Red Sox did not get a starter. So it was different in that sense, that just things that maybe you thought might happen or should have happened just didn't happen. And for the teams that missed out on starters, there simply weren't enough available at what they determined, and it's their opinion, to be reasonable prices. So I had promised chaos at the deadline, a measure of chaos, when we were talking about, man, this might be dull, might not be all that good. We did get a level of chaos, and we got it because of one team, the New York Mets. They made two absolutely stunning trades. Frankly, landmark trades in this industry's history. Trades that perhaps only Mets owner Steve Cohen could make and would make. The first, you know what it was, Max Scherzer. He goes to the Rangers with about $36 million for a top infield prospect, Luis Angel Acuna. The second was, of course, on deadline day. That was the big one, too. Justin Verlander. He goes to the Houston Astros, and let's take a look at that deal. That was basically following the Scherzer template, but it was a little bit different. As you can see right here, the Astros, they get Verlander, and they get $35 million to cover 2023 and 2024 salaries. And then $17.5 million more if his $35 million conditional player option vests for 2025. If he pitches 140 innings next year, that option vests. I don't know that you can put it past Justin Verlander. The Mets get two outfield prospects, Drew Gilbert and Ryan Clifford, two of the Astros' best prospects. So the Mets, if you put all their trades together, and remember, they made some other deals as well in which they included money, they spent at least $82 million simply to enhance their organization, their prospect base. And that $82 million is subject to the luxury tax. When you include cash in a deal, yes, it's subject to the luxury tax. So it was an unbelievable flex by Steve Cohen. And it's interesting. In one of my articles leading up to this, actually, it was the one following the Scherzer trade. I wrote 
that if you're not a Mets fan, you're surely not going to like the way they're spending money and just throwing all this money all over the place, buying prospects. And a number of fans replied to me saying, no, 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 you're wrong. I'm not a Mets fan necessarily, a person might say, but I like the fact that this guy's spending money. So you know what? I misread my audience there. And people were kind of impressed by this. And you know what? I liked it to at least to a degree. I liked the boldness of it, for one. I liked the pivot and the acknowledgement that the season's not going the way they expected. And let's enhance our organization. Let's do some other things that we can spend our money on and make it better for the future. I like all that. I like the creativity. It's different. Yes, it's creativity fueled by millions and millions of dollars, but it was a different approach and a little bit refreshing in a way. And yes, it should leave the Mets in a better place. But here's the question I have. Is this thing going to work? Now, prospects are prospects. Not all of these prospects that get traded go on to successful major league careers. In fact, we've got a long list of ones who haven't gone on to successful major league careers. Some of these guys make it, some of them don't. If you're a Mets fan or even if you're just a follower of the sport, you know of one famous Mets prospect in recent years who still really hasn't become a star. And this is a guy who everyone thought was going to be the next big thing, Jerry Kellenick. Traded to the Mariners and got off to a great start. I wrote about him. He looked like he had turned a corner, and maybe he has. But now he's injured, and he had regressed up until that injury. So we'll see if these guys make it. And there's one other thing here with the Mets and their organization. Sure, they're deepening their prospect base. It allows you to do a number of things going forward. Make trades, balance your payroll, just be stronger as an organization. But none of the three players they acquired was a pitcher. And what's the weakness of the Mets farm system? Pitching. They lack that. Now maybe you can at some point consolidate your assets and just shift it around a little bit, trade one of these hitters for a pitcher. Of course, that's possible. But that is still a problem. And the other thing with the Mets, this backward step they're taking in 2024. Now if you read what I wrote yesterday about Max Scherzer and what he said about why he waived his no-trade clause and the conversations that took place with general manager Billy Epler and owner Steve Cohen leading him to make that decision. He said, they told me we're taking a clear step back. Now, the Mets haven't quite portrayed it like that. Billy Epler said it's not a fire sale. It's not a liquidation. Well, it's also not a situation where you intend to try next year at the same level you've been trying at. Scherzer said he was told, no upper echelon free agents. Well, that's going to be a different Mets team next year. They've got a lot of guys under control. They don't have a lot of pitching under control. And it's a problem. It's going to be a problem for that team. So this step that they've taken, this backward step, it underscores what we've been talking about for weeks here. This is the greatest flop in Major League history. Mets fans have told me, stop writing about that. Stop saying that. Not fair. No. It's fair, and people are going to keep writing about it. In fact, I am quite certain that books are going to be written about this epic failure, and that's what it is, an epic failure. Now, they've pivoted, and maybe they'll come out of it okay in 25 and 26, but that was not what Steve Cohen wanted when he took over his owner. He said he wanted to achieve a World Series title within three to five years. didn't happen. And you look at the Padres, same kind of team, big money team, they didn't do this. They didn't undo it. And they had two of the best pieces that could have been traded at this deadline 
Josh Hader, the closer. Blake Snell, the left-hander. One of the best pitchers in the game right now. The Padres, yes, have a better run differential, better playoff odds. They're a better team than the Mets. But they chose to stay the course. And I'm not saying the Mets should have. In fact, the Mets were probably wise to do what they did. But it underscores, again, the difference in approach and the failure of the Mets to set out to do what they achieved. They didn't do it. It underscores that the Mets did not accomplish what they set out to do. They essentially chased Scherzer and Verlander off the team. And those two guys, future Hall of Famers, they signed with the Mets because they believed in Steve Cohen's vision. And when that vision changed, well, that's when they determined, okay, it's time to go. Now, the Astros are the team that got Verlander. The Rangers are the team that got Scherzer. And it makes for quite an interesting American League West at this point. From the Astros' perspective, the reunion with Verlander, great move for them. What they will be paying him over two-plus years, if indeed that conditional player option vests, is $40.5 million. $40.5 million for two-plus years, that's not bad at all for a pitcher of Verlander's quality. It's really good, actually, assuming he stays healthy. And yes, he's 40. He might not. Granted, they lose their number one and number three prospects from a system that's not all that deep. In fact, it was one of the problems that came about in these trade talks. The Astros didn't really have the kinds of players that the Mets wanted. But what happened? Verlander wanted to go there. And obviously, Jim Crane, their owner, the Astros owner, figured out a way to make it happen. So they get a revived pitcher in the final kick of his Hall of Fame career. Verlander, as you know, has been quite good lately. And now we have dueling rotations in the AL West. Let's take a look at what we have here. The Rangers rotation and the Astros rotation. Oh, and by the way, one of the Astros starters threw a no-hitter last night. Framber Valdez did that. Pretty impressive against the Guardians. So let's take a look at the Rangers rotation and the Astros rotation. All right, here are the Rangers. Nathan Evaldi on the injured list right now. It's one of the reasons they went out and got Scherzer and Jordan Montgomery. Dane Dunning's pitched really well this year. John Gray, Andrew Heaney. Looking pretty good. Much better. The Astros rotation. Well, this looks much different with Verlander at the top, just as it did last year when they went on to win the World Series. You've got Verlander. You've got Valdez. You've got Javier, the rookie Hunter Brown, and another rookie, J.P. France, who's done a really good job. Remember, they had lost Luis Garcia and Lance McCullers Jr., so this really supplements them. It sets them up well. The AL West should be fascinating. Oh, and there's one more team we should mention in the AL West. It would be those wacky Los Angeles Angels. No, they did not trade Shohei Otani. What they did, going back to the acquisition of Eduardo Escobar, was pick up seven players. Seven. Part of that was in response to injuries, but look at this group here. You've got Dominic Leone. He was just the last player acquired yesterday from the Mets. Giolito and Lopez, the deal that they made with the White Sox. C.J. Crone and Randall Grichik, the deal that they made with the Rockies. Moustakas and Escobar, who came before that. I don't know that the Angels are making the playoffs. They have gone all in, for sure. It's kind of cool what they've done. Will it haunt them? It might haunt them. Will these trades that the Rangers and Astros made to get Ver Scherzer and Verlander haunt them? They may haunt them. But these are the chances that these teams took. And, hey, for now, it makes for a more competitive AL West. That's for sure. All right, final thing we want to discuss in this first segment, the AL East. Another fascinating division. Start with the Tampa Bay Rays. They get Aaron Savali. 
okay, that was a pretty good move for them. That cost them a pretty good prospect, a really good prospect, actually. Kyle Manzardo, a hitter, first baseman. But the Rays had to do something with their rotation the way it has been, with the injuries, everything going on, and they did. The Orioles, interesting move here. Now, Jack Flaherty, yes, they got the starter that they needed. But I've been talking about this for weeks, and we've all really looked at them as a team to watch. With the system that they have, with the position that they're in, best record in the American League, could they have done more? Could they have taken some of those duplications that they have in their farm system and really gone after it? Well, maybe if Snell and Hader had been available, they would have done that. But for rentals, they weren't going to do that. And the controllable pitchers, they weren't the only team that passed. Because as I said, none of the big ones really got moved. One thing about the Orioles that maybe they should have done, and someone pointed this out to me last night, someone in the industry. How is it that the Orioles didn't get Keenan Middleton for their bullpen and the Yankees did? How is that happening? Now, the Orioles did acquire Shintaro Fujinami from the A's about, I don't know, a week or so ago. But they needed more help in the bullpen and really could have gotten it. So that's the Orioles. Then we have the Blue Jays. Their two moves were essentially in reaction to injuries. Jordan Hicks to replace Jordan Romano. And Paul DeYoung not to replace Bo Bichette, who thankfully is not hurt, seriously. But they needed insurance once he injured his knee on Monday night. The Blue Jays did not get the right-handed hitter that they were looking for. But as I said, really at the top, we're talking about Candelario, Mark Canna, Tommy Pham. It's not a great group. Cody Bellinger did not get moved. He's a left-handed hitter, but he would have been the best one out there. And then there were the Yankees and Red Sox. Let's start with the Red Sox. There was all this talk about them adding a starting pitcher, getting an infielder, which they did with Luis Urias from the Brewers. But that was all they did. Now, in some respects, I like this. They didn't trade James Paxton. They didn't trade Adam Duval. They didn't embark upon this ill-conceived buy-sell strategy that they chose last year that just backfired on them. They kind of showed faith in this team didn't really want to disrupt what they believe is an emerging core of players. I get all this. And they know they've got four big pieces coming back. Chris Sale, Tanner Houck, Garrett Whitlock, and Trevor Story. The question some Red Sox fans have is, hey, is that enough? These are the Boston Red Sox. Why didn't we add a little bit more? Why didn't we get a starting pitcher? These are fair questions. And Bloom at the deadline has not necessarily distinguished himself, but... I liked what he did this year better than what he did last year because he didn't break up the team. He didn't subtract any pieces. He didn't add enough, perhaps. Yeah, I think I can buy that argument. But at least the Red Sox are the Red Sox. They've got a real shot here to get into the postseason, particularly if their injured pitchers come back and are effective. And then finally, the New York Yankees. What stunned me the most about the Yankees, and I wrote about this today in the Athletics Daily Newsletter, The Windup. The Yankees come to the deadline with one of the two highest payrolls in the sport, second only to the Mets. They come to the deadline, and it's crazy to me that they had really nowhere to go. Couldn't be buyers because they haven't played well enough to justify trading prospects, to justify adding payroll. They've already spent $275 million. And they couldn't be sellers because... They're kind of in it, sort of, though they haven't played well. And more importantly, they don't have 
tradable assets. Most of their assets are underwater. So the Yankees really didn't do much. They added Keenan Middleton, quality reliever, to the best bullpen in the American League, something they've done really well with their bullpen. They've assembled guys, developed them, done great. And they added Spencer Howard, who is a failed prospect, getting his third organization, I believe, now. We'll see how he does. The New York Yankees at the deadline. That's all there was, folks. Now, last year, you might remember, they bought and they had a lot of bad luck with injuries. Montas and Benintendi and Efros and all the things that happened. Lou Trevino didn't work out well for them. Harrison Bader did work out well, but he's been hurt a lot too. So, all right, you couldn't do that, but you couldn't sell either, and you were kind of stuck. The New York Yankees should never be stuck. And this is the most damning thing you can say about where they are right now, that they basically were paralyzed at the deadline. Kind of a stunning conclusion to this deadline for the Yankees. All right, that's my overview. We'll continue on, talk more deadline as we go forward here. Time now for the inside dish. And this week, of course, I want to go inside the deadline, some of the reporting I did, some of the funny stories that I ran into and was part of. And, well, let's start with the question that people always ask me this time of year. Hey, were you even sleeping those last few days? Now, actually, there's time to sleep. Deals aren't taking place in the middle of the night. At least we're not finding out about them in the middle of the night if they are taking place then. So I could sleep from, say, 1 a.m. to 8 a.m. That wouldn't be a problem. I wouldn't miss anything. I'd be in good shape. The problem is adrenaline. And there's so much going on, there's so much running through my head that I can't sleep for that reason. And so, no, I don't sleep basically the four or five days leading up to the deadline. And that is really the sole reason why. There's hours or there are hours in the day available for sleeping. In the night. I could sleep like any normal human being. But it's just there's too much action, too much excitement, too much adrenaline. So, no, even last night, the deadline had passed. You'd think, okay, take a good night's sleep, but still things were going on, still things running through my head. Now, I want to talk about a story that I posted at about 4.30 Eastern yesterday, and it was a story that I actually had sat on for about a day plus, 30 hours or so. It was Max Scherzer, an interview I did with him Monday morning about why he waived his no-trade clause. I had gotten in touch with him. And I said I wanted to talk to him about it. And he said he was willing to go on the record with what happened, but he didn't want me publishing the story until either after the deadline or his press conference in Texas, which actually took place about two hours before the deadline yesterday. He didn't want to compromise the Mets' leverage by saying what he said to me, which is basically that the Mets are not reloading for 2024. They're effectively punting on the season at least in terms of how they have approached previous seasons under Steve Cohen. It's not going to be the same kind of aggressive pursuit of free agents. It's not going to be a year where they really put a lot into it in that sense. They're pointing toward 2025, maybe especially 2026. Now, the general manager, Billy Epler, hinted at this, but not as strongly and vividly, in my opinion, as Scherzer did. So he told me this. I had the story prepared, but I had to wait. So basically, he did not want his comments, what he was saying about the Mets' direction, 
to hurt them in the trade market. If they were trying to make moves and people didn't really know what their plan was for 2024, and it wasn't exactly clear, well, he didn't want his comments to effectively make Billy Epler's job harder. I respect that from Max a lot. He didn't have to give the Mets any break at all. He could have came right out and said, this is why they traded me, and go ahead, write the story right now, publish it. He didn't do that. So his press conference started, I think, at about 4.30 Eastern yesterday, and that's when I released the story. And, of course, he had some strong things to say. Now, even though I couldn't publish what he had said, I knew what he had said, right? And that informed my reporting starting from the point where we hung up the phone. I knew then that the Mets were trying to do some things with their 2024 free agents as well as their 2023 free agents. I knew from other sources as well that they wanted Verlander to go. They wanted to make that move just as they made the move with Scherzer. They wanted to accelerate this process. So knowing that, when I found out with Chandler Rome, our Astros writer, the next day that the Astros were back on Verlander. They were kind of there, but weren't there for a little bit. But no, they were back in the picture. And Jim Crane had this relationship with Verlander. We knew about that from previous transactions he had struck. The trade for Verlander, the deadline in 2017, the August old waiver deadline, and then the free agent deal that he personally negotiated with Verlander right before the lockout in 2021. So all of this was in my head. And that's why I wrote on Monday with Chandler, the Astros are back in, and if Crane wants this guy, and if the Mets want to trade him, well, we know Verlander, with a full no-trade clause, has the ability to effectively control the process. I wrote it that way. I wrote, if Jim Crane wants this and can figure it out, basically, there's nothing to stop them from getting it done. Now, it came out there were other teams involved, and there were other teams involved. But to me, it was always pointing toward the Astros. And when I wrote that story, there was some reaction from Mets fans basically saying, no, 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 no. Jim Crane doesn't control this. Steve Cohen does what he wants. No. Steve Cohen could not exactly do what he wants. If Steve Cohen had his choice, if Billy Epler had his choice, my guess is they would have preferred Verlander to go to the Dodgers. Better farm system. Better guys they could have gotten. Same kind of deal. So sometimes the readers, well, you guys know a lot. You're really smart. You don't know everything. And sometimes guys like me, we actually have some insight into what's going on, and that informs what we write. And sometimes this stuff is just not picked out of nowhere. Some cloud up in the sky. No, it's never picked out of some cloud in the sky. There's a basis for what we do. Okay, so a couple funny stories that came about during the deadline. One, some of you might have noticed this. Maybe a lot of you might have noticed this. Yesterday, I tweeted after the Marlins got Josh Bell that they had made a trade for Josh Bell from the Padres. Uh, the Padres were Josh Bell's last team before the Guardians, which was the team that he actually was traded from. And clearly, I botched the tweet. And Jason Stark, my good friend and co-worker at The Athletic, sent me a text saying, hey, it's the Guardians, man. you got to fix that. And I, I was working on so many things at once, it was right at the end, that I didn't even realize I had done it. So you might ask, how does this happen? Are you just going too fast? Yes, I'm going too fast. But the reason it happened was because I caught wind of both Marlins trades at the same time. One was with the Padres, and one was with the Guardians. And there were a bunch of names coming at me, and I just 
messed up. So I did delete the tweet, of course, corrected it. You look stupid for a minute there. Yeah, it looks stupid. Josh Bell's not on the Padres. He's on the Guardians. But these things do happen at the deadline. You try never to have them happen. But at least I had the right team acquiring him. The other funny thing that happened, this was at about 1230 yesterday. Now, I have relationships with so many people in the game, executives, scouts, agents, players, coaches, managers, and these conversations with all of these people are ongoing. And there's one executive, I'm not going to name him because he probably wouldn't want his name out there, but there's one that we kind of go back and forth once in a while teasing each other. And one day on MLB Network, when I was on MLB Central, I was talking, it was the middle of a long segment, and he just kept buzzing my phone. And I kept hitting the button to make it stop, and he kept buzzing it and buzzing it and buzzing it again. All right, very funny. I can handle it. I could talk even when my phone's buzzing. It was fine, but he was giving me a little bit of a hard time. Yesterday, at about 12.30, just for kicks, because it was kind of slow at that point, I texted this executive in capital letters. I said, trade for Otani. Now, I was kidding around. I thought he knew I would be kidding around. My phone rang like that. What do you got? What's going on? Oh, I didn't have anything. But he thought that the Angels were doing what in his mind would have been the right thing, pivoting, completely changing direction, trading all their potential free agents, starting with Otani, and yes, he would have been in. Like, basically 30 teams. Well, not 30, but most teams would have been in. Well, I got him back. I didn't know I was getting him back, but we are now even. He gave me a hard time on MLB Network. I, for one minute, made his heart jump yesterday because he thought Shohei Otani might have been available. No, he wasn't available. The deadline always produces crazy moments like this. The winter meeting's the same. If I ever write a book, and I'll probably be 90 by the time I get the time to do it, I've got tons of these kinds of stories. They're all right here. They're all probably disappear when or by the time I get to write this book. But funny things happen all the time at the deadline. Chaotic things happen. It's a lot of work. It's also a lot of fun in its own way. Not when you're in the middle of it, but when you look back and realize, man, there's some goofy stuff that was going on. Dude and Dork of the Week, deadline edition. It's going to be one executive in each category. And yes, we have a lot of candidates in both departments, but we're going to start with the dude. And the dude is actually a dudette. It is Kim Eng of the Miami Marlins. Kim was quite aggressive this deadline, first acquiring David Robertson in that trade with the Mets. That was kind of a stunner, right? The Marlins making a trade with the Mets and being the buyer, not the seller. Then on deadline day yesterday, you saw what happened. Josh Bell from the Guardians. I know he's not having a good year. Jake Berger, very good young hitter from the White Sox. And Ryan Weathers, former number one pick with the Padres, hasn't really done much yet, but worth taking a shot on. Guy's left-handed and has some ability. So that was the Marlins deadline, and it was pretty impressive for a team that hasn't competed in a while, rarely adds payroll, of course, and finds itself in the thick of this wildcard race and did some things to address that and show that they meant business. So I want to show you what Kim Ang told reporters yesterday after the deadline because it really gives insight into her thinking and in something in the way she addressed it that I totally applaud. Here's what Kim said. There aren't that many times when you're in this type of situation. Principal owner Bruce Sherman and the entire ownership group 
was completely supportive of us really going out there and spending some money and making sure that we supplied these guys who for the first four months of the season have absolutely just played their hearts out. When you're in this type of situation, you just have to make sure that you treat that with care and that you understand how big a deal this is for the city, for the Marlins fans, and for all those guys downstairs. And you have to do what you can to improve the club. Eureka! This is exactly what an executive should be doing. This is exactly what you want to hear. And this is exactly the approach that ultimately is a successful one. Now, I don't know if these trades work out. And maybe they all flop and maybe she traded away too much. I, I have no idea. You can't judge these things one day after they happen. But it's the mindset I'm talking about. It's a different kind of mindset than we've seen from many executives in recent years. And I wrote about this, as I said earlier, in The Athletic today, in the windup. It's a lot of caution, a lot of restraint, a lot of discipline. Use whatever word you want. A lot of outright fear. Nobody wants to make a bad move. Nobody wants to be criticized in the media years down the line. People are afraid of losing their jobs. People just don't get after it the way they used to. Now, the stakes are higher. There's a lot more money involved. I get it. But at the same time, Kim Eng, due to the week, because she took that approach with a team that we haven't seen that approach from very often. Dork of the week. I hate to give it to this guy because I like him, and he's had a 26-year run with the Yankees that has been absolutely amazing. Kim Eng used to work for this guy. He's maybe a Hall of Fame executive. He's Brian Cashman, the New York Yankees general manager. And I hear from Yankee fans all the time. I hear from fans for all teams all the time. And a Yankee fan sent me a text last night and said, I am completely out on this team indefinitely. <laughs> indefinitely. This guy's completely out. And you know what? He's not alone in his sentiments. Yankee fans are very frustrated. They're agitated. They've about had it. Now, the owner, Hal Steinbrenner, is part of this. Maybe he hasn't spent at Cohen levels, but he's certainly spent a lot of money. But really, what happened yesterday, the paralysis I talked about in the opening segment, as Joel Sherman of the New York Post wrote today, and Joel is so insightful, he's a good friend of mine, and he always nails it. As he wrote today, yesterday, that was years in the making. That wasn't simply the product of a difficult set of circumstances right now. It was the product of all of these moves that have not worked out, all of these bad contracts, all of these players who have underperformed that you acquired. And that is why the Yankees are in this position. That's on Cashman. That's why he's Dork of the Week this week. And sure, he's had a great run. We all know he's had a great run. And I think fans lose sight of that sometimes. At the same time, fans are upset. They want the Yankees to be better. They want them to be like the New York Yankees should be. And it's been, as we said, several years of things turning out not exactly how the Yankees wanted. Not at all how the Yankees wanted. I could have named a number of executives, I'm sure, if you're a Twins fan, if you're a Cardinals fan, I could go through a number of teams and you guys all want your execs to be Dork of the Week. And I don't like naming anybody Dork of the Week, really, but we do this segment. And we do it for a reason. And yeah, Brian Cashman, Dork of the Week. It's been hot and sunny everywhere lately, so protecting your eyes is really important, which is why I want to tell you about our new sponsor, Shady Rays. They're an independent sunglasses company got a world-class product that is just as good as the expensive sunglasses that are out there. 
They have durable frames, extremely clear optics for outdoor adventures, and what really separates them, this is the awesome part, is the best protection plan in the industry. If you lose or break your pair, even on day one, they will send you a brand new pair with no questions asked. How about that? And if you don't love your Shady Rays, you can exchange them for a new pair or return them for free within 30 days. So you can buy and wear your Shady Rays with the confidence that they have your back. From building play sets for pediatric cancer patients to providing young adults with MS the outdoor adventure of a lifetime, Shady Rays is helping communities all over the place. Shady Rays are giving out the best deal of the season, their best deal. So go to ShadyRays.com and use code F-O-U-L, capital letters, F-O-U-L, for 50% off two-plus pairs of polarized sunglasses. Try for yourself the shades rated five stars by over 250,000 people. Time now for Grilling Ken. Let's get to your questions. We will start with the Red Sox and the AL East. Let's get to it. Corey Moniz asks, what do you or the rest of the league, I can't speak for the rest of the league, think of how the Red Sox are operating? Fans aren't happy in the slightest. Most expensive tickets in the game. They couldn't pick a direction again this year. Bloom hasn't made an impact deal in his tenure as chief baseball officer. He middled it again. Corey, this is a criticism that you do hear of Heim Bloom, and it's not unfair. Certainly, they were not impact players, as I mentioned earlier at the deadline. And someone else mentioned to me, actually one of our writers, it's been four years now. And really, in some respects, four years of mediocrity. Now, they had the great run in 21 to the ALCS. And you've got to give Heim Bloom credit for that if you're going to demerit him for these other years. But they are supposedly, in his view, building this sustainable contender. And they're kind of making progress toward that end. But... They've had a lot of traumatic things happen, too. The trade of Mookie, the loss of Bogarts. Yes, they re-signed Devers to a big, big deal. But they still are not operating like you would want the Boston Red Sox to operate. They're not the Tampa Bay Rays. That's the criticism you hear of Bloom all the time. He comes from Tampa. He runs the Red Sox like the Tampa Bay Rays. That's not entirely fair, but I get the point. And while, yes, this core is emerging, there comes a point where you do have to show some urgency. And there was an urgency at this deadline from him. Now, he wasn't the only one. And the market had some effect on that. As I said earlier, starting pitchers, eh, there weren't really many quality ones traded. But at the same time, he did pick a direction here. And the direction was to stay the course and keep this team together, not trade Paxton, not trade Tuval. The criticism that you can have, and it's fair, as I said before, is that he didn't do enough to supplement. And yeah, there wasn't enough urgency shown there. All right, next question. Let's get to this one. This comes from Dark River Lion. Can we talk about the AL Central? Oh, yes, we can. I've never seen an entire division dedicated to not winning in the current year. Seriously wild. Everyone but the Twins aggressively sold off. The Twins just did nothing. Like, no one wants to win that division. Discuss. Okay, I'm glad you asked this, Dark River Lion, because it is a division that is beyond bad right now. Beyond bad. The Royals, awful. The Tigers, not good. The White Sox, my gosh, what a disaster they've been. And then you've got the two teams at the top. The Guardians were a game out of first place when they traded Aaron Savali to the Rays for a top-hitting prospect, as I mentioned before. One game out of first place. Also one game under 500. So yes, that influenced them, and they didn't see with the pitching injuries that they have 
to Bieber, to McKenzie, to Quantrill, a real path toward a playoff successful run. They saw a path maybe to a division title, but they weren't going to go far in the playoffs. I understand what they did. Actually, I think they did the right thing. They dumped Josh Bell as well. That was a mistake in their offseason. Zanino was a mistake in the offseason. They didn't have a good offseason. But I understand where they're coming from. But what happened was, when they did that, when they traded Savali, just took the air out of the balloon. Twins didn't have to act with any urgency. They're going to win this division. They're going to win it rather easily. And no, they didn't supplement their bullpen. They didn't get the right-handed hitter they need. And they're going to be fine regardless. So if you're the Twins, you probably should have been more aggressive on those fronts. But I will say this about the Twins. Last year, they were real aggressive and it had to work out for them. They made a trade for Jorge Lopez. Jorge Lopez cost them Yenier Cano. Now, no one knew he was going to be what he is now. And it also cost them a pretty good pitching prospect, Cody Povich, who is the number 11 guy in the Orioles system, according to MLBPipeline.com. The number 11 guy in a very rich system, that's a pretty good prospect. That was just one trade that they made. The other trade the Twins made, Tyler Molly, that cost them Spencer Steer, Rookie of the Year candidate in the National League with the Reds, and Christian Encarnacion Strand, who has come up with the Reds as well and is part of their future. So sometimes, as they say, the best moves are the ones you don't make. And going back to Heim Bloom, I'd rather he make no moves than do the kinds of things he did last year. When he wasn't a bad buyer, he was a, more of a bad seller, and he didn't sell enough. But that's my point here on the Twins. Okay, they should have done a little bit more. Yes, no question. But my gosh, last year that turned into a very, very poor deadline. All right, we've got another Twins question here. Let's get to this one. Let's see what we got here. This one comes from Ross Carner. Ross asks, i got to laugh at this one. Not a question, but can you talk us Twins fans off the ledge? Kind of is a question, but okay. The needs were not that expensive, relatively speaking, and no movement for a bottom five lineup against lefties and a thin bullpen is astonishing. No argument. The only thing I'll say, oh, well, here's another one. Was there a power outage at Twins headquarters? That's from Justin Flug. Twins fans are coming out, and they're making their feelings known. Only thing I'll say about the right-handed hitter search was that, again, there weren't many great right-handed hitters available. The big hitters were Candelario, Kana, and Pham who were traded. Teoscar Hernandez was not traded by the Mariners. Evidently, they did not get a good enough offer. He is someone who strikes out a lot, not a great defender. Teams didn't see him as this rental nirvana, put it that way. So that's part of this, right? The bullpen, sure, they could have acted in a more aggressive way trying to address their bullpen. I think that's a fair criticism. And they've got some guys coming back, but, man, they could use more. So, Twins fans, I don't know if I can talk you off the ledge. I did my best. But you're going to win the division. You're probably just going to suffer the usual fate in the first round. Looking ahead, a little bit of a different schedule for me this week. I've got a Fox game Thursday. Thursday instead of Saturday this week, it's Astros at Yankees. Verlander will be in an Astros uniform, not on the mound. He just pitched a couple of days ago, but that will be our Fox game. I do not have a game Saturday, so for the three days after this game on Thursday, I probably will be taking lots of naps. All right. I want to thank everyone for joining us on this special edition. I want to thank the fans for their questions, everyone for listening, for watching. You know what to do. Subscribe to us. Fave us, like us, do all of those things. We're available on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. Talk to you guys on Monday.
Hey, FT Live fam, if you're new to the party on the BetMGM Sports app, enter the promo code FOUL, F-O-U-L, for up to $1,000 back if your first bet loses. It's simple. Ready? Download the BetMGM Sports app on iOS or Android or visit BetMGM.com. Sign up and deposit into your newly created account. Place your first bet offer and receive up to $1,000 back in bonus bets if it loses. If the bet does lose, your bonus bets will be available once the wager is settled. Gotta use the bonus code, Valve. 